looking at Facebook is like looking at the obituaries in the Michigan Chronicle. And you might know the Michigan Chronicle is the African-American newspaper. We have never, ever in our lifetimes, or I think any time in human history, had a time when the whole world was experiencing the same thing in almost the same way. And how do we take that power and bring us together rather than split us apart? Hello, everyone. Welcome to Powering Up, our cross-generational conversation about leadership, power, and gender. I'm Ann Doyle, author of Powering Up, How America's Women Achievers Become Leaders. And I am Monica Doyle. I'm Ann's niece, and I'm the millennial voice of this podcast. We're recording this episode on Monday, April 13th, the day after Easter 2020 as the COVID-19 pandemic has the world in its deadly grip. Here in the United States, 20,486 people have already died with over one half a million confirmed cases and counting. Uh, And Michigan is one of the current hotspots. Over 1,200 Michiganders have lost their lives and over 22,783 cases have been confirmed with worst outbreak here in the Detroit area, which is our home base at Motor City Women's Studio. Of course, we are all working virtually now and honoring the stay-at-home national emergency orders, which uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer ordered weeks ago. But, you know, Detroit, Monica, is also bearing witness to the disproportionate impact that this crisis is having on the African-American community. Our guests today are both on the front lines of this fight. Marianne Udall Phillips is the founding executive director of the Center for Health and Research Transformation at the University of Michigan. And she previously served as the director of Michigan's Department of Human Services, where she oversaw public assistance for Michigan's most vulnerable citizens. And also joining us virtually is Vern Davis Anthony, former CEO of the Greater Detroit Area Health Council. She has served as the health officer at three levels of government, city, county, and state, including as the recent interim CEO of Focus Hope. Um, Welcome Marianne and Vern. Marianne, let's start with you, uh, and we're going to do the same with Vern. Would you just give our listeners um, some context about the lens that you bring to this very complex topic about um, the impact of COVID-19? Yes, you're, you're right, Anne and Monica, about how devastating this disease has been across our country and in our state, and of course, particularly in Detroit. And at our center at the University of Michigan, we are trying to help our policymakers Uh, understand what the best practices are. These are really very challenging decisions. There is no absolute certainty of a path forward. So we look at what's happening in other states and other counties. We look at the research. We're working with our colleagues uh, at the School of Public Health to understand the epidemiology uh, and the trends and the patterns that could be happening here to try to help make the best, most informed policy decisions possible in this most uncertain situation. And of course, I bring the lens uh, as a public health person uh, and also as someone who ran the Department of Human Services. So I'm particularly passionate about this cross-section and intersection of poverty, disease, social determinants of health, uh, and how that's affecting our communities. 
Wow. We look forward to hearing a lot more from you about that as well. And Vern, if we could give our listeners a short context, uh, context on the perspective you bring to this conversation from your years in health leadership. Well, uh, certainly having served as the public health officer for the city of Detroit most recently, but prior to that, um, uh, the state of Michigan, <clears throat> and also being an African-American, you know, having lived in Detroit and having many many friends uh, and family that still live in the city. I bring to this conversation, uh, having personally known several people uh, that have died. Uh, in fact, one of my friends uh, put it this way, uh, looking at Facebook is like looking at the obituaries in the Michigan Chronicle. And you might know the Michigan oh. Chronicle is the African-American newspaper that, uh, that we read so much here. And can you give us um, maybe a little bit more context as to why the African-American community in particular has been so sure. affected by this? So what we're seeing uh, with this ap ap um, epidemic is quite frankly, the bringing to reality long-standing inequities as it relates to uh, African-Americans. And, and, and we've now kind of coined that the social determinants of health, housing, education, employment, access to health care, access to healthy foods, uh, and racism, mm -hmm. you know, have all played a part, you know, so it kind of created the perfect storm. Yeah, I wanted to add something to what Vern said, because to, just to bring this home and how stark this is, in uh, the city of Detroit, uh, the prevalence of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease among adults uh, is 10.7 compared to 6.6 .6 for the U.S. as a whole. Now we know that, and I, we could, I could share similar data for asthma, for diabetes, for other uh, co-occurring medical conditions. We know that lung conditions like COPD and asthma are really um, very, very associated with a higher death rate from the coronavirus. And if you think about what's happened in Detroit over the years, think about a place like Zug Island. Zug Island for years uh, emitted particulate matter uh, into the air in the city of Detroit so that people would describe orange snow as an example of what was um, residual from Zug Island. The air quality in our poorest communities and really for much of the city uh, is directly affected by that kind of air pollution. And that is years of, uh, of you know, toxins essentially affecting our population that is now coming to roost uh, with this coronavirus so evident. We've made improvements over the years uh, in air quality and in regulation, some of which frankly more recently is being rolled back at the federal level. Um, but these problems that are in our city are so evident now with the, the deaths from the coronavirus. You must have seen this coming, Marianne. Well, you know, I think we've all been, uh, those of us who've been tracking things like this in this country certainly have seen the likelihood that the impact of the coronavirus in the U.S. would be much more devastating than in countries like South Korea. Why? Uh, Why? Be specific about that. Yeah, so, you know, our, it really relates to, I think, three or four major trends in our country that's fundamentally different from uh, many European countries and many Asian countries. Uh, first of all, our whole 
globalization. This is a national, this is a global issue, not just our issue, but it's very relevant to the US right now. Globalization of supply chains. An example, 50% uh, of all N95 masks, the masks that are so crucial for healthcare workers to wear, uh, are made in China and were being made in China before uh, this crisis. 80% of active pharmaceutical ingredients and generic drugs come from China or India. And so early on in the onset of this disease, we knew that supply chains were being interrupted. Uh, and later we've seen countries closing down those supply chains to keep these very essential uh, supplies for themselves. So that, that's a, a major trend in our country, this whole issue of globalization and it affects every country, um, but we see it here very dramatically with our dependence on frankly cheaper labor in other countries to supply these critical uh, issues right now. The second issue in the US that's quite distinct from the way the rest of the world is structured is our system of federalism. We have policy making that is at the federal, at the state, and at the local level. You, you see countries like South Korea, like Singapore, like Hong Kong, uh, being able to take unified countrywide action very quickly. That is very difficult in the United States. We have a decentralized system of government. It, we are very suspicious of strong centralized federal power. And so we have a lot of confusion that's gone on. Uh, in, in today's New York Times, they published a summary of the state orders for every state in the country on stay at home. They are all different. It's all over the place. Yeah, all over the place. Mm -hmm. You know, so what's essential in one state is not the same as in the other state. Uh, and we're not getting consistent guidance from the federal government. Uh, and we've, what's been clear in this pandemic, uh, one of the major issues we're facing is we have a federal stockpile, we have federal emergency supplies. There was actually no defined system for distributing those supplies. Uh, and so we, again, we're, it's the system of government that's quite decentralized and really quite different here than in the rest of the world. We also have a very limited investment in public health. I know Vern will talk about that as well. 2.5% uh, of all of our healthcare spending goes to public health. Uh, if we are going to make a change in how this, uh, how this disease uh, trajectory is, we're gonna have to increase our spending for public health quite dramatically. And other countries spend quite a bit more on public health than we do. And the last trend I would point out in the context of how we got here uh, is the fact that we have a much more constrained supply of healthcare beds, quite intentionally. We have many fewer hospital beds uh, because we have moved a lot of care to the outpatient setting. Other countries have, have much greater inpatient capacity than we do. Uh, it was quite intentional in our country to do that for a variety of reasons, cost related and otherwise. But now we see the strain on our, our healthcare system. Uh, as we struggle to meet the need for uh, ICU beds and uh, ventilators and other, you know, other capacity to serve a population that's very, very sick. Wow. I mean, you have laid out so many power, important, compelling pieces. Vern, uh, I'm sure you have many things to say about each of those. Jump, jump right in here. Well, you know, what I wanted to do cause, is kind of get back to uh, some of the driving forces, uh, which, you know, have... I won't even say trends, they've been static in terms of going down where the gap between the rich and the poor has gotten broader. The gap between uh, races, you know, has gotten broader. 
So the trends as it relates to social determinants of health uh, in more recent years, uh, many of them seem to be going backwards. Uh, a couple but of why? Areas I mean, before you get into a couple areas, why? Why is that happening? I mean, you know, I know. I mean, let's make sure people listening know. Well, you know, if you if uh, trying not to be uh, strictly partisan, I will say that our leadership and uh, the tone that is has been laid in this country uh, by our leadership in Washington, in particular, uh, has has led us to believe that there's a us and them. That. Uh, Who's the us and who's the them? And, the and you can be quite frank are, on this podcast, please. Okay. Those that are, are the us is uh, the wealthy, not even the middle class, quite frankly, although verbally they're put into that. It is the upper class. I, they say 1%, I'll say 10%, and anybody that's white. And the them is uh, brown people of color, African-Americans, uh, uh, LB gay people, I didn't want to get the acronyms screwed up there. Uh, and then you can add on to that list with Hispanics. And now with this disease, we've drunk Asian people in. Uh, so that, that is the them and this is the us. And that gap has gotten broader and it has really impacted so many things you know, down the chain. I think the point Vern's making is so important about how these trends have gotten worse. Uh, particularly over the last several years, the tax bill uh, favored uh, very wealthy people. Uh, and in the last several years, we've seen the federal government try to impose more limits on people getting food assistance, requiring work to get food. Uh, we've seen an encouragement for people to get Medicaid, uh, requiring states to have people working uh, to get Medicaid. We've seen cuts in a nutrition, nutrition programs and other programs that really are were designed to help people who are most in need. Uh, and now we are reaping those rewards. I mean, essentially the fact that we have so many people who are uninsured uh, in our country, that we have uh, so many people, uh, I mean, the water shutoffs, we have to talk about the water shutoffs in Detroit. We have oh, so many okay. people in poverty yeah. who can't afford the most basic needs including clean water and so their water yes, especially off. when the we're talking about washing your hands i wanted to mention you're right detroit and flint uh in relationship you know yeah. the, the flint, whole thing now where the water isn't hands, clean where the water because, itself uh, when you, you don't even have clean water yeah. uh to to wash your hands with uh to be safe yeah. Yeah, and so. uh, i have to mention housing because the density uh, not just the density, because you have density in Manhattan, but the density where you have, you know, large families and groups of people in small apartments uh, in communities uh, where there's no access to, to healthy food. Uh, you just have a, almost a Petri dish for, for disease. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't say, you know, work at home because most of them are employed in jobs where you can't work at home. So uh, people are in and out because they have to be in and out. For those of us that have been involved in this, it is not shocking, but it is extremely distressing. One of the points of this podcast that uh, I, a baby boomer, and my millennial niece and I do together is to bring 
cross-generational perspectives to this conversation. And uh, Monica, I know you pay attention to these issues, but I also see your eyes getting wide at some of these very compelling points uh, that Marianne and Vern are bringing up. Um, what, what is your perspective as you hear this as a, a young millennial um, growing up in our culture at this time? Well, I really like to kind of gauge how, you know, my friends and peers, um, like what they're talking about right now and kind of bring that into this. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest things that I'm hearing, not only from them, but um, from our two guests today is an issue that I feel like I've brought up recently and seems like it's socially being swept under the, the rug, which is this, this way that the the mega rich have somehow convinced a lot of the lower class people that benefiting the rich will benefit them. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems like it's one of the biggest parts of this lie that we're seeing unravel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm hearing, you know, the poor are basically in a Petri dish. They're, you know, lambs to the slaughter right now. So what I am kind of most alarmed at right now is what seems to be a systematic attack on the poor. Um, and this seems to be magnifying all of our political issues right now. I feel like we're doing a lot of talking about COVID, but one thing I would really like to hear about is, is how things are going to change. I think that is such there a you go. And <laughs> I, very segue. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I don't know if this will be true because you know, our history is not great in this regard, but I'm hoping that we learn something from this uh, and make really fundamental changes in our social safety net. Uh, you know, the, 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 the thing that, the case study that I cannot forget, that I cannot get out of my mind is our bus driver in Detroit. Right. Was coughed on and later died from COVID. And, you know, as Vern said, it is, it is those workers who are driving the buses, who are doing uh, the most, you know, who are the grocery, in the grocery stores, uh, who cannot afford to work at home, who cannot do social isolation that we, the way we are doing social isolation. They are the most crucial workers uh, along with our healthcare workers today. Front line. Yeah, we don't value them. Right. And, we, and you know, look at- We look don't at, pay them well. You know, Pay them. Uh, look at how we treat immigrants, uh, particularly undocumented immigrants, who we are incredibly reliant on to do the kinds of work that other people don't want to do. And so, will this change that conversation? Will we understand? I'm hopeful it will change that conversation. I'm hopeful we'll understand that universal health coverage is a public health need, and it protects all of us, not just those who have coverage, because the Virus is indiscriminate. It, it attacks people, whether they have health insurance coverage or not, and then those people transmit it to others, right? So I'm, I'm hoping we understand we are all in this together. Okay. This is maybe, maybe we can have a dialogue about reducing income inequality. Maybe we can have a dialogue about the importance of food and social safety nets like we haven't in the past. Maybe we can have a dialogue about water and access to water. You know, let's hope that we have that. And that's what I would ask you as a young person to talk to your, your peers about. 
we need social activism. We don't need people to withdraw because they're upset that Bernie didn't get the nomination. We need people to engage, to change the priorities. And the only way you change their priorities is working within the system to give voice mm -hmm. and power to them. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Bernie. Well, one of the, the points I want to make here is that it's not, Joe, just poor people who are dying. You know, they're dying at higher rates. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But, you know, in Detroit, for example, we have lost so many of our significant leaders, African-American leaders, the, the, the highest bishop in the Church of God in Christ Church, for example, uh, O'Neill Swanson, for example, uh, Brenda Perriman. Uh, for example, who was a well-known uh, TV and radio host in our community. And that's one point that I think needs to be clear so that people understand is all of our problem, including the young people that supported Bernie, who, who I believe have a real strong heart for this country. Yeah. Well, and a lot of my friends are Bernie supporters. And, you know, one of the biggest things that I'm trying to get out there right now is if you like him so much, you know, sometimes you have to play the game so that your guy that you think can help you can keep helping you. Mm -hmm. All right. Because mm -hmm. under, under a different president, he's not going to get as much done as under a president of his own party. And if you care about these issues, I mean, if we care, I mean, you know, if you really want to invest in public health, if you really want to invest in people having access to care, if you really want to invest in helping improve the clean water and clean air of our communities, you have to invest in a candidate who believes in those things. And you yeah. have to change, you have to make sure we have leadership who believes in those things. And currently in Washington, we've seen a, uh, a, a total uh, walking away from so many protections for consumers and for our water and our air and, uh, and, and so many things. So, You know, we have just about five minutes left with the two of you, and I know you both have um, tr tremendous pressing issues to get to, but um, I want to ask you um, just to share with us um, what you're feeling right now. From a, from a bigger picture piece about this gigantic pause that whether you wanna th think about God or Mother mm -hmm. Earth or the universe, however you think about it, um, this is unprecedented in terms of um, the humans being mm -hmm. in, in the cages and mm -hmm. I see Mother Earth <laughs> breathing. Um, yes. Share whatever you would about your personal feelings about where we are at this moment that we're experiencing, which will be uh, the most significant, um, perhaps wake up call of our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, one of the things I'm feeling is a, a sense of hope. Um, you know, and I feel that because right now, the issues that we face as a world, really, um, you know, the, the fighting, lack of uh, c communication and respect for countries across, across the globe. Um, you know, what we've seen in the environment as a result of not having all these humans walking around polluting everything. Um, the, the glaring face of, of disparities, you know, based on race, uh, where you can no longer say, well, I, I didn't know that, or it has nothing to do with me. Um, you know, I'm hoping that there's a, a groundswell 
of people in this country that will know that we must have change. I was just thinking the other day that if we don't have a change in Washington, we'll never find out how to treat a pandemic better because we'll never get the information that we need. So we need to turn this thing upside down as a country to examine what we did wrong. And we've got to have a change in Washington that's going to be just, you know, transparent and not hide data. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm hoping, I mean, I'm willing, as old as I am, I'm willing to get into that scruffle right now. And I'm hoping that what we're seeing is going to not just make you feel sad, but make you feel empowered and just angry enough to force change. So that's why I have a sense of hope. Nothing wrong with righteous anger. Yeah. Very good at it. <laughs> well, I love I love Burns' passion and her commitment, and uh, I know her well. I know she will fight <laughs> to uh, tooth and nail to get this right. country on the right track. It's unbelievably wonderful. So I've been uh, on a very different plane, been giving a lot of thought uh, to. Uh, what a bizarre circumstance we're in, in globally, in that we are all having a shared experience. The whole yes. world is having world. a shared experience, and yet we're having it with social distancing, physical distancing, whatever you want to call it. We're having it sort of alone or with our family units or whoever we're, we're, we're home with. Uh, and how do we take that shared experience and really share it. Um, I think that's what will give us power going forward. We have never ever in our lifetimes, or I think any time in human history, had a time when the whole world was experiencing the same thing in almost the same way. And how do we take that power mm -hmm. and bring us together rather than split us apart? Let's make sure we're listening. Uh, Marianne and Vern, our podcast conversations focus on leadership and power and gender. You are both seasoned, highly accom uh, accomplished leaders being tested again and again through life uh, or death crises. Would you share with us and any of our listeners something you've learned about leadership that is particularly valuable in these trying times? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it is so important right now for leaders to be able to help people move forward in a constructive and positive way. It is very easy in this moment to become demoralized, to become fearful, uh, to retreat from the world. And you know, we are disconnected from each other physically. And so I think it's really up to leaders to move us forward with mission, with purpose, uh, and with engagement as we are in the midst of this crisis. And I think it's also important for leaders to uh, be authentic and be willing to, to tell the truth, to tell the truth, to tell the truth in a way that it inspires people to go forward and do better. Yeah. Uh, hiding the truth or not being authentic yourself, you, you, it's just not credible and the world doesn't go forward. And I think the greatest responsibility uh, for leaders, uh, whether appointed by somebody or self-assumed because you know you're a leader is to be able to, to to move the world forward in a constructive way and in order to do that you have to be honest you have to be willing to tell the truth you have to be willing to feel other people's pain uh, and and be able to articulate that uh, so that the world can hear if you're looking for strong women leaders definitely watch our governor 
in the state of Michigan. Governor Whitmer is doing exactly what Burns said, talking absolutely, absolutely, and with with passion, giving people hope, but not being unrealistic. And being strong, you know, she's so drawn a very strong bottom line about what she's going to accept. And she is getting a lot of flack. Uh, she's starting to get that political flack back, and uh, she is staying true to her course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Wow. Well, thank you so much, health uh, leaders and activists, uh, Marianne Udell Phillips, the founding executive director of the Center for Health and Research Transformation at the University of Michigan, and um, Vern Davis Anthony, former CEO of the Greater Detroit Area Health Council. Thank you. Stay safe. Stay home if you can. I'm Ann Doyle. And I'm Monica Doyle. And let's all go. Power Power up. up. Thanks for joining us at Powering Up. We hope you'll subscribe and share us with your network. And Monica and I would love to hear from you through the Powering Up Women Facebook page or at Andoyle LDR on Twitter. And remember, power is the currency for getting things done. Claim yours and put it to work.